What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Landlord Chick Podcast. So I thought it'd be fun today to kind of delve into a, a slightly uh, current event story. You've likely heard about what I'm going to talk about in this because we have a landlord in the state of Wisconsin who has garnered national attention and even, even international attention because I actually saw the Daily Mail have an article on this landlord. And uh, the Daily Mail, yes, it is an English publication, but I still kind of think it's a quasi like international one because it dabbles in a lot of different things and it tends to get kind of localized sometimes. So it's not like we're we're having a specific London newspaper report on this, but it's garnered a lot of attention. Uh, when it first came out, you likely saw it on Fox News and things like that. So there's a landlord here in Wisconsin. He is considered one of our largest. Uh, there is a gentleman named by the name of Joe Barada. He is of Arabic descent, but he goes by the Americanized version of his name, which is Joe. He has over 800 units in Milwaukee County. I believe he is one of the top three landlords in Milwaukee County as far as the number of units that he has. And recently, uh, at the beginning of the year, towards the beginning of the year, the Department of Justice slapped him with a 14-count lawsuit. And this was a huge lawsuit. So what we're going to do in this podcast is we're kind of going to go through it. We're going to piecemeal a little bit. We're going to learn from what he did wrong and maybe things he could have done differently that weren't necessarily wrong. And maybe we can just learn from what happened and we can educate ourselves on how to work better. Building a real estate portfolio is as much about buying properties as being a de facto entrepreneur. I'm Karina Ufinger. I'm a multi-property investor, rental management company CEO, and also a landlord coach. I'm going to show you the systems and knowledge you need to thrive as a real estate entrepreneur. From your first property purchase to building a portfolio of passive income where you work less than five hours a week, you'll learn the essential information and skills to build a profitable portfolio and live the life you truly want. Whether you are well on your journey or just starting out, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Landlord Chick Podcast. So I'm not actually going to like go through the entire court case with you because the court case that Joe Barada is facing, as I said in the intro, it's 14 counts. It's a total of 57 pages. That is a whopping, whopping huge court case, especially when it comes to somebody that is a landlord. You know, landlord cases, whether it be Department of Justice or uh, even, you know, some other uh, Wisconsin entity or state entity, you maybe get them to be like 10 pages, but 57 pages is, it's quite, quite the docket. So he operates, as I said, Strictly in Milwaukee County, he does have a property management company that he owns that basically has its employees that operates his properties for him. And that's called Barada Properties Management Incorporated. And so both Joe himself and his company are named in this lawsuit with Department of Justice. And a brief overview of the biggest charges in there is fraudulent misrepresentation, which is a very vague term. We'll kind of get into that unfair billing practices and requiring tenants to pay the cost, including legal fees and any sort of exterminating of pet fees that didn't actually get exterminated. So 
there's a lot to unpack here. And the first thing I want to say is that after this lawsuit was filed, Mr. Brada actually took out two full page ads that ran for an entire week, both in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which is a local publication, as well as one in Madison, which is the state capital of Wisconsin, because this is obviously a big, huge public relations nightmare for him. And he feels passionately that he didn't do everything wrong. So he's trying to make sure that he doesn't have a huge PR mess on his hands. Now, it's important to understand that first off, you know, he is not necessarily a slum landlord. I don't want you to go into this thinking, oh, this is just another slum, slum landlord getting in trouble. No, this is actually a landlord who, as, as we get into this, you'll kind of see he was actively improving his properties, doing repairs, things like that. It's just maybe his methods need a little critiquing or uh, something's got lost in translation, tenants got upset. So this certainly is not necessarily a slumlord. Like, I don't want to present this opinion that it's just another slumlord making us look bad. I don't look at Joe Barada as being that. Now, I do want to correct something I said earlier in the intro. Um, I had 800 units in my head, and it's actually, so it's 8,000 units in Milwaukee and Racine. So I was one zero off. <laughs> so this guy is obviously very big fish. And we do... And we should kind of count into the fact that amongst his 8,000 rentals, they are divided into 92 of his limited liability companies, which of course are mentioned all in the complaint, which is maybe also why it's 57 pages is because you have to include 92 LLCs in there. Now, when we get into the nitty gritty about what he was accused of doing, there's some good bullet points to review here. So for starters... Some of the allegations is that in order to make renovation projects easier and less expensive, Barada tried to push existing tenants out of their newly acquired apartments to conduct work on the renovations. Now, what's important to understand is that first off, in a lot of these cases, Mr. Barada was actually not necessarily removing tenants from property that they had newly acquired. And it's interesting the way the complaint is written. That's what I thought. Like he had moved tenants in and then suddenly he was like, Oh no, wait, you guys got to move out. Cause I got to do renovations. But when I dug into it, I realized that I'm not interpreting that phrase. Right. And it makes me believe that there's a lot of people not interpreting that phrase. Right. So the complaint says pushing existing tenants out of newly acquired apartments Sometimes it makes you think that, yeah, he's kicking people off that he just rented to. In reality, what it is, is that these are recently acquired properties. I really wish they had worded that differently in the complaint. If they had put it as pushing existing tenants out of recently acquired properties, I obviously would have looked at this a lot different. But anyway, so there's a complaint in the, uh, there one of the allegations in the complaint is that he was pushing tenants out to make rent to make out renovations on properties he just acquired. And here's, here's the reality of that. In of itself, as long as they're not on a year-long lease, there's technically nothing wrong with that. Uh, was it cool that he was doing this in 2020 and the beginning of 2021? Probably not. I guess that'd be one of our first, the more you know, sort of rainbow banners from NBC back in the 90s. I'm totally dating myself there, but... This is the first, the more, you know, thing that that obviously wasn't a very great life choice. Like 
telling people to get out so I can make renovations and increase the rent on this apartment that I just acquired or this property I just acquired during a pandemic isn't really going to go over very well. So I think that'd be the first critique I have of Joe Barada and how he approached things is that really, I mean, I certainly could have been one of the people who told people to leave. I want to make a renovation, but I didn't because I'm like, this is a pandemic. It's hard to find a place to go. It's everything's kind of up in the air. So I actually fall on the side of believing that while it's not illegal, what he did, is it morally questionable? Sure. But that doesn't mean I think he's a bad guy. Another allegation is specifically that Barada's workers at their command, so his property management company and then him, tore down and threw away mailboxes and buildings that they were renovating, including throwing away mailboxes with existing tenant mail inside. And so that's obviously kind of an issue. Um, I've never been in a situation where I've actually replaced mailboxes fully, but you know, a critique of the approach here would be that I would give tenants notice, hey, make sure your mailbox is cleaned out by, you know, 10 a.m. on Friday morning because we're going to change out the mailbox. And then what I would do is if there was mail in there, I'd have it sent back to the property management office and then tenants can come in and pick it up. But the complaint goes on to say that he would remove the mailboxes, throw away the mailboxes with the mail inside, and then the tenants would go a prolonged period without mailboxes obstructing normal mail delivery. So the other thing we're kind of unpacking here is the prolonged period. If you are in the process of replacing mailboxes, the mail delivery system for the tenants, what is an appropriate length of time to leave them without a mailbox? You know, there's nothing in state statutes probably anywhere that covers this because it's one of those really obscure things. But at the same time, this is how these statutes are created, by the way, is you get this one person who did this X number of times and suddenly your state creates a state statute that says mailboxes cannot be torn down for less than X number of hours or days. Now, realistically, when I look at this, if I was swapping out mailboxes, assuming that I have to, you know, I guess here's the thing. I would approach it in probably a totally different way. What I would probably do is I would find another place to put up the brand new ones. And then I would inform the post office company of, hey, this is where the new box is located. Can you start putting new mail in there? And then I would tell the tenants, hey, get all your old mail out of there by X date. We're taking the old one down. I have approached it that way. I, I, I previously had an owner who basically owned an entire cul-de-sac in a specific city on a street. And he wanted to put in one of those standalone mailbox systems with keys where it's this huge like metal box that you see at corporate facilities around like a, like a corporate uh, center. So what we did was we told the mail carrier, hey, we're going to be switching over to this. This is the day we want delivery to start at the new one. Stop, stop all the deliveries to the old ones at the corner that are right along the main drag. We'll have this new one up and ready to go. And then what we did was we told the tenants, hey, any mail that is in the old mailboxes and it was two days after the new one was put up, we're going to throw away. And that's the way we handled that. You know, we gave them really a lot of notice. So what is a prolonged period of time? I have a feeling that what happened here was for whatever reason, whether it be Barada's fault or not, his tenants likely went days 
without being able to receive mail. Realistically, I think a complaint for a prolonged period without mailboxes and obstructing normal mail delivery, I think you'd probably be looking at something like five to seven days or more. So if we're assuming this is five to seven days, we can obviously all kind of learn that that probably wasn't a great idea. So it's really best to do not necessarily a swap out, but really what's best is you put up new mailboxes right next to it or in your new location, have mail delivery start to the new ones, and then tear down the old ones after so many days and obviously giving the tenants notice. Another one of the specific complaints is that during the early stages of the pandemic, Barada employees entered tenant apartment without wearing face masks to make non-emergency repairs. Now, this is important to understand because here in Wisconsin, I don't remember specifically when it ended, but beginning uh, like around March 23rd or so, and I specifically remember this because we had to do a very large pivot, we were told by the governor that we could not go into occupied units except to make necessary repairs, necessary repairs. And necessary repairs were really coming down to there's a plumbing leak, there's no heat, or it's a security issue. And those are basically the three uh, emergency repairs that the state qualifies. So in this instance, it looks like Barada's employees were entering to make what was called elective repairs during the middle of the pandemic. They weren't wearing face masks, which at that time they were required. You know, a face mask, sort of civil liberties aside, obviously it's in the statutes or or was in the law here that we had to wear face masks. I can't necessarily condone Barada or his employees for not wearing face masks, and I certainly wouldn't really. And then, of course, I have to sort of go, uh uh-uh, when it comes to making the non-emergency repairs, because I was one of the people stuck telling my tenants that sorry, we can't fix your broken doorknob because, well, state of Wisconsin says it's not a necessary repair. So I really can't necessarily agree with what he did there. And I can't really find this underlying justification for it. Another item that was in the complaint was that he did not provide sufficient notice for repairs. So here in Wisconsin, we are required to give 20, uh, I'm sorry, 12 hour notice for a repair to a unit. And in most instances, this is totally, totally okay. So we talk about 12 hour notice. When I give myself or my tenants 12 hour notice, I'm doing that for things like a faucet, a door, a doorknob. Um, (laughs) a hole in the wall. But the problem here is that Barada was giving 12-hour notice in some instances for replacing windows, sliding glass doors, uh, 12-hour notice for some large bathroom remodels where they were going to be without a bathtub for more than that workday, possibly without a toilet for more than that workday. And that's where we kind of run into an issue. So yes, technically the statutes only say 12 hour notice, but yet I feel like, I feel like at some point, anyone that can think about what it's like to be in the other person's shoes for a moment would probably begin to grasp the idea of how much of a big inconvenience it would be to find out 12 hours prior that the very large window in your bedroom is going to be replaced the next day. And maybe you have to rearrange your entire bedroom to give them access. Or just this idea that that's a huge repair going on, a lot of noise, things like that. And it's going to take, you know, four, six, seven hours. It really can kind of be a big inconvenience to the tenant. 
And then, of course, we look at the idea that he gave notice about some major renovations only being 12 hours. So replacing a tub surround in a, in a tub. You know, that's something where, honestly, I give my tenants at least a week notice. Like, I'm telling them, hey, in the future, sometime this month, I want to replace your tub surround in your toilet. What's a time that works for you? Now, I understand Barada has 8,000 units, and maybe for that reason, he doesn't operate quite as I do. But I think still, to a certain extent, accommodations have to be made and understand that 12-hour notice is only sufficient for a certain repair or a certain number of repairs that are rather small. Giving 12-hour notice for something where you're going to replace a kitchen floor or a toilet or, you know, cabinets is just not, it's not good enough. So when we talk about giving notice, whether it's 12 hour, 24 hour notice, whatever your state says, keep in mind that you should really be using that as your time frame for small repairs, things that are going to take less than three hours. Then it's totally fine, I think, to give a 12 hour notice. But if the work you're going to be completing enters more than three hours or it's going to be cumbersome for the tenant, like they have to move a lot of furniture, there's going to be a lot of noise involved, please give them more notice than what your state requires. It's just a courtesy. It's just something that we do human to human being to help people out and make sure we're not making their lives too difficult. Now, you might be wondering, how on earth did Barada actually get on their radar? Like, did he have thousands of tenants actually complain about what he was doing? No. And this is probably the biggest part where I where I look at Barada and his staff and go, that was probably the worst life decision you have ever made. So last year... After evictions were started up again in Milwaukee County in a very free-flowing format, Barada filed 275 evictions in June. 275 evictions in June of 2021, just after Milwaukee County said, okay, we're going to start doing evictions on a more broad scale. That's how he got on the radar of the Department of Justice, because when you have one single landlord filing 275 evictions in one month, yeah, you're going to get some attention looking at you. You're going to get judges, court commissioners, you're going to get DAs that are going to be like, whoa, the Department of Justice needs to see this. We need to start looking into some stuff here. And then it just basically becomes this pool that grows and grows and grows. Because you invited suspicion by filing 275 evictions in one month. And when you invite that suspicion, then they begin to look into your day-to-day operations. They start talking to your tenants. They start asking for paperwork from you. And they start investigating you. So this is why he got on their radar, because that was kind of a bad life choice. In my opinion, if I had 275 evictions to file, which it's kind of mind boggling for me to think I would have 275. I guess if I eventually had 8,000, if I was coming out of a pandemic, sure I might. But the way I would have approached this, if I were Barada, I would have told my team, okay, I know we've got 200, we, we, we got nearly 300 people that we got to get out. But you know what? Let's do it this way. Let's just get 10% done right now. 
let's get, you know, another 15% done next month, or maybe not, you know, that low of numbers, but you know, 30%, 30%. And then the rest of them, maybe if their leases weren't going to be up too long in the future, maybe let's say four months from now, their leases were going to be up. I would just say, you know what? Let's just let their lease expire. We won't renew it. They can move on. Let bygones be guy bonds and move on. You know, that's that's the way I probably would have approached this 275 is I would not have put all 275 in the court system right away. And I would have probably just sat on some of them and been like, you know what? Let's just forget it. Mark it in your calendar. Give them a 30-day non-renewal, 60-day non-renewal, whatever it needs to be based on what their current lease is, and then we'll move on. Now, another important charge I want to talk about specifically to uh, the landlords in Wisconsin is one of the charges is that the standard, the non-standard rental provisions uh, and the non and, and the standard rental agreements that were used by Barrett and his company included illegal rental provisions that included the tenants to pay attorney and court fees for evictions. It's important for you to understand in the state of Wisconsin that you cannot require the tenant to pay that. It's up to the judge if they award it to you. So having it in your lease that they have to pay your attorney's fees is technically illegal. Whether or not you get those is up to the judge. You can sometimes petition them. Most of the time you're going to get denied, but there are some instances where judges really look at the tenant and go, you are totally messed up. I'm going to make you pay for the attorney fees here. Usually that happens when an eviction goes to trial, it's usually not done if you just have your simple hearing and it's a one and done situation. But what Barada did was he had in his documents that the tenants had to pay the attorney fees and court fees for the eviction. And that's technically an illegal clause to have in there. You cannot require them to pay it. It's something that you can petition the court for, but you can't put in your lease and say, oh, well, you're going to have to do it. The other thing that's mentioned in here is that on their non-stand is, is that some some leases fail to have a non-standard rental provision in the state of Wisconsin. This is a key document. Uh, if you want to try and withhold anything from a security deposit and have it stand up in court, the fines, the specific fines, need to be enumerated in a form called the non-standard rental provisions. If you're not in Wisconsin, you might want to see if your state has something similar. Because here in Wisconsin, it's not just in the standard rental agreement, like the top the top cover sheet of a rental agreement or a lease. It's its own withstanding document that stands alone on its own, and it lists the fines or charges that can be deducted from a security deposit when a tenant vacates the unit, either by choice or by being forced out. So in some instances, Barada didn't have non-standard rental provisions in there, and then he was, and then he had evictions where he had um, some judgments that were included for fines that weren't expressed in the lease, and that's obviously kind of a double issue because number one, you had a judge that actually did issue it, and then two, you obviously have this problem that well, Barada, that's not how it functions in the state of Wisconsin anyway. Then there's also a complaint that the broader workers renovating a newly purchased building enter a woman's locked storage space and threw out everything in it. You know, I can understand that obviously some things get confusing when you purchase a property. You might not necessarily know who owns what, especially in a basement. Like I remember I took over management of a 20 unit in Kenosha for a little bit uh, while the owner was trying to sell it actively. 
And one of the things was his ex-property manager, he had no idea what storage unit in the basement, these chicken wire storage units, what, you know, who belonged to what and what was old tenant, what was a current tenant. And it was a really big mess. And basically the way we approached it was we sent a letter to the tenants and said, we need you to go down to the basement and mark your storage unit with your name on it, on a piece of paper and attach it with twist ties or something to the chicken wire on your storage unit. And that way we know that this is yours and you're actively using it. And we did say, you know, we also said you're only allowed one per one, one per unit. So if you're using two, you got to condense it and this is your deadline for it. I obviously don't know specifically what Barada did. I don't know if he maybe approached it that way or if this was just crossed wires where maybe some sort of situation happened where the woman didn't label it in time or maybe the woman did get the notification. You know, something maybe else happened here. It might not be totally clear cut, but if you find yourself in a situation like that, I would approach it the way we did. It's just let everyone know, hey, you got to mark the units that are yours. You're only allowed one per unit condense them and anything that's left in an unmarked unit or in a duplicate unit, meaning you didn't combine yours, we reserve the right to throw out after 30 days, something like that. Give them plenty of time. When you're talking about throwing away tenants items and it's not in regards to like post eviction, you want to give them plenty of time. And honestly, like 30 days is plenty of time for something like that. Uh, another one of the allegations in this one, I have a hard time kind of comprehending. Uh, one of the allegations is that in a newly acquired building, uh, a tenant could not exit her apartment because the doors had been screwed shut. The woman called the fire department to have the screws removed. This is just sort of a mind boggling thing. Like I'm trying to picture how this would happen, how you would screw shut a door to either a building or a unit and not realize that, oh, that tenant has like no access out of their unit otherwise. And what a totally creepy thing to happen to the tenant, by the way, to suddenly like try and go to leave your unit and be like, I can't open the door. Like it's not moving. It's nothing's happening. And I, I do kind of wonder like, okay, did the woman call Barada's property management company or did she just jump immediately to the fire department? Either way, I still kind of look at Barada's employees and go, really? Really? How did this happen? Like, there just has to be some massive, massive, just freak out mess up on the part of Barada's employees to make this happen. And I do kind of wonder, like, how the woman approached it. Did she call the property management company first? If she did, and they were like, well, yeah, we'll get to it eventually, and they didn't treat it as an emergency, well, then, yeah, absolutely. The woman had every right to call the fire department, and there's every right for this complaint to exist. It just It's a completely crazy situation, that one. <clears throat> then the other thing that they talked about in here is that sometimes Brad and his company will tell tenants that they must move with less than 30 days. Notice, uh, here's the thing, Wisconsin State Statutes, it's a minimum of 28-day notice, but it's technically more like a 30, 31-day notice because the 28-day notice is only meant to cover the month of February where there's only 28 days. So in reality, we in Wisconsin have to give notice 
before beginning of the rental period, we want them to vacate at the end of. Now, in case that seemed like Chinese to you, if I want my tenant to move out July 31st, I have to have a notice in their mailbox prior to July 1st. So like June 28th, it's got to be like arguably already dropped off in the mail and on its way in a mail carrier van to the city, to the unit. But it has to be in their possession before the first. So it has to be in their possession on the 30th day of the month before. And in this case, it seems like Barada was basically either maybe trying to tell people with 28 days in a month that wasn't 28 days, uh, or he maybe was just kind of trying to skirt it a little bit and say, you know what, be out in two weeks. And most circumstances, you can't do that. There's very rare circumstances, which I won't really get into the podcast because that's very state specific. But generally speaking, that's obviously not something you can do. So looking at this from the perspective of Barada basically totally circumvented state law, which says you have to give them a full rental period notice, which is typically 30 days. He certainly, certainly, he and or his employees were certainly completing an illegal act there. Um, so the other note, some of the other complaints was that tenants were not given proper notice for exterior renovations that affected their quiet enjoyment of the premises. You know, some that understand that as landlords, uh, one of the rights that we're giving to tenants when we rent it out is quiet enjoyment to their premises. So we still own it. You know, we still have rights to encumber it, put liens on it, so on and so forth. But the tenant gets the right to quiet and peaceful enjoyment. And that's the reason why a lot of us have uh, quiet, quiet hour clauses in our leases. Now, in this instance, he was not giving notice for renovations that while not taking place on the inside of the unit, they were on-site projects that interfered with the quiet enjoyment of the premises for the tenants. So what I'm thinking is happening is you're talking about not getting any notice about there being jackhammering in the parking lot for a full day or for two days because you're working on replacing the parking lot, or you weren't notified that a crew is going to come by and replace all the siding on the building. And they're going to be there for three days doing it. Obviously, that's going to create a lot of ruckus, a lot of noise, and it's going to interfere with their quiet enjoyment of the unit for anywhere from eight to arguably 12 hours of the day. Again, learning from Barada's mistake here, this would be something you would give your tenants a heads up. We tend to think that when we're on the outside of our property, not going into a unit or in the common areas, we don't necessarily need to give notice. Again, I encourage you to look at that differently, whether it be you're painting the hallways and there's going to be wet paint or you're replacing all the siding on a building or replacing all the trim in a hallway. If it's going to create a situation where it interferes with their quiet enjoyment for, again, I'd say more than three, four hours, you should be giving your tenant notice that that's going to be going on on these specific days. It just kind of reminds me of common courtesy. I feel like I've said that a couple of times as we're going through this. Now, I want to reiterate, I don't think I don't think Barada is a slumlord. He's not, because as we've talked about, he's making these repairs. He's making these improvements. He's buying properties that are arguably a derelict and have likely been maybe mismanaged previously by management and or ownership. He's buying them. He's making them better. And he's trying to improve them. He's just maybe failing on the execution of some of it. So he's certainly not a bad landlord. I'm not going to call him a slumlord. I don't want you to think that. But 
He's certainly a landlord who could have done things better and differently, but it's a good opportunity for us to learn from what happened in this instance. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. It was kind of fun just delving into someone's story and kind of critiquing it and offering advice on how to approach it differently and going with another sort of real life example in this podcast. I hope you guys have a great week and I will see you next time.